0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Death by Adaptation, Clapper's new book club series. This is an ongoing project that we're just starting. It's a monthly podcast that will be accompanied by two reviews written every month, uh, probably just by me and the good Yuan Gledo. I'm your host, Nicolo Grasso. And to kickstart this wonderful project, we decided to make this special first episode on Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And before we dive into this, I want to welcome the panel of today. So we have the lovely Yuan Gledo. How are you doing, Ewan?
1: Uh Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm full of cocktails, so I'm, I'm
0: good. I'm looking forward to this, yeah. <laughs> and we have the host of the Anka Gems podcast and the feature editor himself, Jakub Flash. How are you doing? Hi, I'm
2: doing well. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for coming. What we'll be doing with this podcast every month is discussing not only the book, but also the film adaptations of these novels. And this first episode is quite interesting because some people would say, is the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood book an adaptation of the film or is the film an adaptation of the book? And the history behind it is quite interesting, a bit vague in some parts, but to make it very short, Quentin Tarantino was grabbing all the different stories that he could from Hollywood veterans that he worked with, like Robert Forster, Bert Reynolds, David Carradine, Kurt Russell, and he thought, you know what, this would be an interesting, an interesting book to write about jolly good Hollywood in the 60s, when the times were changing, and he thought about the story of a, stunt, of a stuntman and the actor that is portraying just doing shit in Hollywood. And so he started writing this book, apparently he had been working on it for a few years actually, before he realized, you know what? This would make for a good movie rather than just a good book. And so he stopped writing the novel, got into writing the screenplay, made the movie in 2019 produced by Sony, his first non Weinstein production, got to Cannes, got to the Oscars, everyone watched the movie. And now two years later, here we are with the finished novel in our hands. An owl, which is an interesting beast, especially because it's the first time Tarantino has written something that isn't a screenplay. And that's actually the first question I want to ask you guys. What do you think of Tarantino as a novelist compared to Tarantino as a screenwriter? Uh, Yuan, why don't you go first?
1: I think in- inevitably, if you're going to like you said, it's, it's so difficult to figure out if he's adapting his own work, really, and which way that goes. Is it him adapting his book to the screen or is it him adapting the screen to his book? Either way, it's the, the fine line between screenwriter and author is that screenwriters have the benefit of visualising their project. They have the ability to showcase actors and actions and scenes. They have that showcase. Where with novels, you have to fill in those details. You can't just say... Oh, Leonardo DiCaprio walked in, he looks like this. you gotta, you got to fill those details in. And I think Tarantino does that well. Um, I think his screenwriting influences and his experience definitely lingers on the book. However, I don't think that's the biggest draw of the book, and I do think it has its own limitations. I'm sure we'll get into those later. But uh, on a whole, I think it, it's a reliable structure for Tarantino to make. I just don't know how well it really translates to the written word. Um, it, it's, it seems like a guy that is trying very desperately to get away from that screenwriting label and he kind of pulls away from it quite well at times and other times it feels very strict and it feels like this is essentially just a breakdown of a scene or a part we've seen in the film that really has no variation apart from setting and that's fine, we've got we've to make those concessions because we need to make sure these characters and the screenplay is is that we know of it that we know of these characters because the the real benefit of once upon a time in hollywood is that the people reading it the bulk of them have seen the movie and then they're interested to see where these characters go so really you're going into once upon a time in hollywood thinking i want to know where brooke dalton's going i want to know where cliff booth is going charles manson roman polanski sharon tate you want to know where those people end up and it's i enjoyed my time with the book i just thought it was a bit underwhelming um And I think a lot of that does have to do with that point you raised there. It's the difference between screenwriter and author. And I think Tarantino tries to blur it a little too much at times.
2: To me, the question of whether he's, I don't know, whether I like him as a screenwriter or as a novelist, I don't want to say it's a loaded one, but it's an interesting one. Because if I remember correctly, before he writes his actual screenplay, he writes a treatment. Uh, So like, I think The Hateful Eight was written like, good chunk of it was written as a novel <clears> of <throat> so his older screenplays were in like originated as some as a written story so it's kind of and, and if you watch it especially uh, earlier films like you, the films like pop fiction or like Reservoir Dogs—they're structured like novels, and even like The Hateful Eight's structured like a novel. So, like he always makes sure to use chapters to jump between timelines, the way like authors have the liberty to do. So he's almost a filmmaker and novelist kind of wrapped into one, to me. And then, therefore, like reading the actual his first novel that actually just made it to market, it kind of feels like you're not really reading. A, a, some, something written by a, a debutante like it's it's something that written, that's written by someone who's done this before. And then, well, yes, he's not a like he's not David Foster was Let's 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 be let's be clear. Like he's not um, Thomas Pynchon. Like he's not you know he's he's he he's, or or like Cormac McCarthy. Like he's not. But he writes in a very compelling way in terms of writing prose, and I think he does this well. You when you mentioned this as well, you say so, um, there's detail that you need to fill in that non-screen in a screenplay that is just a visual. But then you can I think you can distinguish a good writer from a mediocre writer. Mediocre writer, by the way, they kind of just fill in that detail. A mediocre writer will just describe shit to you. A good writer will choose these hooks, these little wrinkles, to m- help you paint the picture with your own imagination, and and he does that. He's 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 a very I think he has talent for that, and, that, and which makes his at well his well, his only book I think very easy to read. Like I'll have to no, I'll have to put it that way. So so yeah, and so so to me the question of how I see him as a novelist is basically it's almost like a natural progression. From his filmmaking sort of output, and I think they're both kind of wrapped into this one burrito of just artistic expression. That he's just I don't know he's, he's um, that that's just how he operates. He he he's both a he's he's a writer and a, and a screenwriter, kind of just all in one. And it's just one and the same. It's just two sides of the same coin in the same sort of sphere. So it's not like he had to adapt his work his craft to do to do this, because I have a feeling that he's, that's just how he's operated. And he just made it, made a commitment not to turn something into a screenplay, put it this way.
0: Yeah, that, that's it for me. That's, that's what made this such a, a breezy, an easy breezy read, because it's, he, his style of dialogue is intact in this one. But not only that, I, I think for him writing this novel gave him a lot of freedom and a lot of freedom to do things that he would never have gotten away in the movie, especially the self-indulgence. He's already an incredibly self-indulgent director, but here he, he goes wild. And one of, the, one of the things like early on in the novel, you have the first chapter that is the encounter between Rick Dalton and the talent agent, Marvin Schwartz. And, and it's long. It's like 40 pages long, but it's so fun. Like, I was loving reading all the back and forth between them and getting into the mind of the character. And we'll be talking about that in a bit, but there's there's a lot of deep diving into the psychology of these characters, into what they're thinking. Things that you can maybe see in the movie, maybe not, but actually getting a glimpse of what they're actually thinking about certain people, about what they're doing. It adds an extra layer to all of them. But second chapter of the novel is just talking about Cliff Booth and this cinephile tendencies, and it goes on for 40 pages. And I was laughing my ass off. He's talking about uh, I'm Curious Yellow, he's talking about his Kurosawa love just for cinema in general and the classic Westerns and Italian cinema when he was in the war. And it, it just keeps going on and on. And I think it's it's important to have the chapter early on because it says, okay, If you don't like Tarantino and you got into the second chapter and you're hating it, drop the book because it's not going to get any better. If anything, it's going to get even more self-indulgent. And as someone who loves Tarantino, I had a blast. Um, There's there's an element of fun that is palpable in here. And the fact that he has no limitations to his creativity, to what he can write about, to how long he can write about certain things, Um, it's liberating. And I, I honestly hope you know we all hope he maybe will continue making movies but if he stopped and just wrote novels I'd be down for that because if I think his style like all of you said just perfectly translates to the written form even if again a <laughs> bit self-indulgent at times um, and, and, and something that I want to ask you is that there's there's changing styles in this one you go from from certain sections that are elongated flashbacks others that are dialogue heavy scenes And a few, and that's an interesting comparison to get into the differences between the novel and the film. In the film, when they're shooting the Lancer pilot, you actually are watching it as if you were watching the pilot, not the making of the pilot. It's like you're watching a proper Western show. Meanwhile, in the book, it's like you're reading a Western novel from the 50s and 60s how did you guys find these differences between the changing styles and the flashbacks on various characters and these Western sections? Because personally, if I had to to complain about something, criticize something of this book, is that probably those were the weakest parts, the Western parts for me, because it gets so um, bogged, not bogged, well, kind of bogged down in the nitty gritty of, you know, the Lancer family and the father. And it feels this lovely picture but it's very self-contained and doesn't necessarily add much to the overarching outside of atmosphere, outside of, you know, again, getting to know the characters. It's kind of like an extended version of the, of the film in a way. Those were the only parts where I kind of felt the weight of the writing. I don't know how you guys feel.
2: I mean, I totally agree with with you on this. In the book, there is a chapter that's, towards the end where they just describe about this describe the the lore of the lancer series and i was just like oh can we please i mean it's basically just i know this This is this so, mean, there's like two or three of them where they just talk about um like just it, like you just go into the stories of what they what they're filming i suppose like in the you, you can see that this is times you know just like thinking about oh if I if I made Bounty Law or Lancer this is how I this is what I would this would be my process I would just write the backstory of everything, and it's just that's great on its own, but there is a better story in there and we just paused it. I mean Quentin, I love you, man, but Jesus, it's unimportant. Whereas in the film, the, the there is a scene in there where that that's played for a reason that way. Like you just wake up in the film. But they talk. They they get into the saloon. They start talking. But it's played for comedic effect because it, no, it's not for comedic effect. But it's played for um for you to realize the thin boundary between film and real life. Because then you know you uh, DiCaprio would just will just talk about um I'll go bring her and then bring her fiddle and her bow and then and he will just pause and he says line line what's my line right <laughs> and i'll just like go again and then you'll see you'll hear Sam wanna make it the director going like sexy for Hamlet," you know like it's just so it just breaks the fourth wall as in like breaks the illusion momentarily and then just comes back into the illusion and then it just comes whisks you out again and that's fun and it's also funny because these moments are kind of genuinely comedic in here it's basically like i like westerns and this is the western i like and it's kind of like Mean meanwhile, um, it's basically in between, in the in the middle of the story where Cliff Booth is going to go and uh, go into the span round, and it's just oh, I don't I want to be there I want to be on his shoulder and then just like you denying me this like this is not good for business uses Quentin just chill, yeah.
1: I think that's the it's what we've all mentioned vaguely. It's um, Tarantino is so established as a screenwriter that now that he wants to make a leap to author he doesn't really have to think about the consequences of what would happen if a book didn't sell well he has made his money and he's just doing this for fun which is very liberating to see it's very nice to see an author that can just write whatever he wishes because he doesn't really need the cultural appreciation of the book he's already had that with the film when he's writing this is just an extension to a, a topic and a thought process that he enjoyed visiting which is Good. It has good intentions, and in it. It, it it is strong in places. What my issue is is, as Nicola mentioned, the self sort of preservation of Tarantino. You know, he directed uh, an Oscar-winning remake of Lady in Red, which is was it Lady in Red or was it Lady in yeah, Satin?
2: It's the Lady in Red with Michael Madsen. With Michael Madsen. It's, no, but that's that's a that's a tongue in cheek. He's self-aware. Like, it he's is massive yes. tongue in cheek. Yeah. So, so you know, it's it's
1: fun. It's, like, it's self. It is fun. I just. There are times in this book, and I think most of it comes from, uh, I. It, it's such a very specific thing to think of, but it's what stuck with me the most. It's he uses italics to present the thoughts of his characters, mm-hmm. and I have nothing wrong with that.
2: Plenty of people do that.
1: Plenty of people do do that. Yes, I just I wonder about the impact of it here, because mm-hmm. it's usually just Rick Dalton or Cliff Booth thinking. Oh well, it's I don't everyone. Like this person. Yeah, it's it is. Everyone. It's everyone. But more so with Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth, it's whenever they're using it, it's sort of a, I don't like what they said about me. Do you think I've done Shakespeare? I remember that line. It was, do you think I've done fucking Shakespeare?
2: Which is a good line. So, but uh, I get it. No, but I I know. But I know. I think I know where you're going. It's just like, well, it's inconsistent. Usually you'll have a like. This will be part of the the deal with. Okay. That means the 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 narrator is one of the characters as in Mm -hmm. like we're in rick dalton's head and that that's whose thoughts we're hearing right but then he's doing it for everyone but that means it's just telling you a story
1: yeah okay Okay. i understand that yeah okay because i
2: I can i honestly read this in quentin tarantino's voice yes yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. I, I, i could not
1: help myself but hear his voice like from the very first page it's it's very telling that it is a quentin tarantino piece it's like Nicola said, you've find got two somebody. chapters to sort out if you like this or not. Oh, because yeah. I think it, it, it is self-indulgent, but it is, like you said, it is a tongue-in-cheek style, and it's just seeing how far you can push it. And need just push it far a couple of times. But I think the bulk of it is the people that are reading this are Tarantino fans. People are not going to go into this book thinking, well, I've not heard of this Quentin fellow, but I would like to give his work a go. You're not going to start here. Probably going to end here, if anything, because he's best known for his film work. And I think comparatively to the film, I do think the film is stronger um, by a long shot. But I think that's more down to the notes he wishes to pick up on in the novel are the same to the film, more or less. But it's how he adapts them in the film. Well, you've got Kurt Russell doing narration, or you've got Cliff Booth and Rick Dalton at the meeting with Marvin Schwartz.
2: You don't get Zoe Bell to tell, telling Brad Pitt <laughs> to tell to get fucked. <laughs>
0: what the fuck did you do to my car
1: <laughs>
2: I think this, get off you wardrobe off my set get fucked <laughs> I think as well it's this fucking Dalton what <laughs> <laughs> oh, is this I just watched it last night again sorry that's alright we didn't establish ago. how clean this show is it's not very clean now is it no no, no, no.
1: <laughs> you can't be you, right. we're reviewing a Quentin Tarantino book <laughs> <laughs> however it's stained. it's clean, clean. It's <laughs> this was stained before it began but yeah I was thinking the scenes in the film where it's um, I've lost my train of thought now what was it it was um yeah so it's I think one of the big points that I'm going off of with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as a book and as a film the big difference for me is how he adapts the culture and the surrounding actors and the music and the style mm. of, of the 60s in the film he has the benefit of utilizing audio essentially he can have those record scratch moments where mrs robinson plays or he has references to bob dylan in the book it's Bring just a
2: little loving dude precise
1: that is a phenomenal song i thought my playlist <sighs> for
2: I've, years I've, do you know i, I, I kind of the whole I soundtrack. Is cliche today on the way back to and from work. guess what i was listening to just that guess. song just fucking the entire soundtrack <sighs> it's just such a beautiful music to drive to
0: my goodness yeah. And the commercials as well, so it yeah. makes it like a real radio. Yeah, <laughs> that it was it actually, immersive. yeah.
1: Just not, not to spin off from my own K-A-J. point, there. That you have you all got copies of the book, yeah? Yeah. Right at the back, with the commercials, I thought that was yes. a lovely touch. Yes. I thought that was yes. really nice. It adds nothing to his it's writing, but it adds more to the context of how the novel should be perceived.
2: Yes, it's it's. Do you know what this is? These are. Um, Tra- trailers for machete in front of grindhouse yes
1: it is it is exactly <laughs> which is the, that
2: which is basically like okay i'm not reading a book i'm reading an experience because this is a he w- doesn't want you to just have a book oh yeah let's read what, what precisely what to, no yes this is a type of book that that was popular at a certain time in the past that no longer is around and he's bringing it back
1: and it speaks to that in not just what he's written, but how he's presented the book itself. Mm-hmm. He's got a very like, obviously it's not a hardcover, by the way. And he was he, hard uh,
2: he, he thought with the uh, editor apparently because they wanted now we want a hardcover, and Quentin was like, "Get fucked, I want yeah,
1: it." Apparently. i want, a, so, I want a that though. I believe so, but in the distant future.
2: Yeah. The, no, it says. Hold on.
0: The one at the end. Yeah.
1: Coming to a bookstore near you.
2: Yeah. The it hardcover edition. Yeah. But, but usually, hardcover photos. comes first. Paperback is basically like, oh, that's the cheaper version once the editor made yeah, some yeah. of it, their money back.
1: But I think the actual look of the book, with the pictures on the front, and it's, a, it's quite a small book. Like, I could fit this in my pocket.
0: It's great for an airport. Uh... I could fit that
1: that's in a, my that's pocket.
2: A, that's an airport page turner. That's this is absolutely. an airport
1: page turner in the same vein of what Tarantino loves most about this era it is that mm-hmm. sort of pulpy little paperback you
2: pick up at an airport
1: and you can read on your that's way that's the to book work that's
2: the type of that's the type of book that Rick Dalton has folded in half in his pocket Precisely, when he's yes. reading it on, set, on when, set when he's when he's not reading you know uh rehearsing his lines when he's and waiting think, for his shot right yeah mm-hmm. and i
1: think the actual style and presentation of his work does more to lend the context of the book and the novel as a whole i think actually presenting it as what he Thinks of it as a time capsule for the 1960s, just the aesthetics of it, and it's actually quite a nice. You know, it's nice to feel that because you think, yes, this could actually fit in in the period he wishes to pay homage to, and it's yeah. it's very it's a very nice touch.
0: Yeah, I, I would love, honestly, to meet someone who hasn't watched the movie and reads this book, and I would love to hear their thoughts because it's really hard to to separate like the, the look of the film, the actors that play these characters. Yeah. That's that's the hardest part. Um, and the hardest actually to, to get into something a bit darker now, let's say, let's, well, there's a lot of dark things to discuss actually in this book, but just talking about the, the psychology and the history of the characters, there's a lot of backstory that's revealed. And one of the characters that gets the most backstory is Cliff Booth. And something that I was defending originally with the movie was that, you know, there's there's a flashback about did he actually kill his wife or not? And which for me, honestly, I I think it's in the beginning of the book and I hated it, I didn't write down the quote but there's something about like following characters who are unlikable and doesn't really matter or something like that. I can see a lot of the more politically correct crowd which they kind of already did actually just getting to these parts of the book and going like, ah, you see, you see he's a horrible person Cliff Booth actually killed his wife just cut her in half and stayed with her where she was bleeding, regretting his choice. And it's it's the level of extra detail that originally I was like, oh no, we didn't need this. But in a way, it, it, it even adds more depth to Cliff Booth. And not just that, but just in general, this book is horny as fuck. Like this might be the most sexual Tarantino has ever Did you been. read it with a boner?
1: have you not no. seen from just till dawn where he drinks tequila off of someone's foot that's, that's someone. honestly that's that's hayek
0: oh it is isn't it someone. yeah yeah sorry it's been so it, it could have been Harvey uh, Keitel for a line i sorry that's an interesting alternate I'd love to see the Keitel
2: me to drink anything out of anything I'll be like yes
0: ma'am <laughs> <laughs> just opening up the mouths whatever you that's, want put, yeah right in there <laughs> But that's that's something I was thinking after. I was going throughout Tarantino's filmography and thinking, has he ever had proper sex scenes? I no. was thinking, okay, you have like no. Jackie Brown the quick joke between like Fonda and the, the, De Niro it's like, okay, that's that's kind of it He's never really had nudity As well, yes mm. That's true And which it's, makes this book fascinating because but this doesn't
2: have nudity either or like sex scenes, it's just anecdotal because people this is basically just men talking about women they banged
0: yes and including yeah. getting lost in his like sexual history and things like that like oh, i went home and got blown a woman even though well, I did yeah that.
2: but they but they never go into like and then they entered the room and he just pulled off no there's one scene right, so in, the car, yeah. in the car when when he picks up the hippie there it gets closest because oh yes so when she gets off f- and then she t- teases him uh but that that gets the closest to what would be sort of like, an, like a sex scene but you know and then think, and, but he turns it around into a comedic scene right
1: yeah mm-hmm. and i think the point of those scenes where they are essentially it's just sexual bragging for the characters is it's just to highlight that hyper masculinity of the 1960s where you've got people like steve mcqueen
2: and what's lee, marvin, lee marvin charlie Bronson, all these
1: everybody. guys that yeah you've he got those bulky, a second, hypermasculine right? characters who would go to parties and say oh I've had sex with all of these women. It's like that's good, good for you, Steve McQueen. How was the great escape? Stuff like that. But it's it's not used as sort of a. It, it it's used for the characters, to break for Tarantino. It's an illusion to the idea that these are just very fractured, worried men that they'll soon be found out as just regular people rather than sex crazed star symbols. Well, they're both
2: right, but precisely. Then, yeah, but then there's there's with the uh, with the Cliff Booth because we kind of all we're drifting already, but then. I wanted to kind of quickly just touch on this when when the film came out, and then even now when we were talking about other things on different podcasts, and then people will be some people will be like, oh, you know, he the Cliff Booth is a misogynist, therefore Tarantino is a misogynist." No, he's an author. He just writes a character. Like you, 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 can, you can write a character who's a, an asshole, and that means that doesn't mean you're an asshole. You, you don't have to identify with all of your characters. You probably will identify with some or some of their traits, but you know. Doesn't tell, but when people kind of latch onto this because Tarantino is cool to hate these days. He it, yes. it used to be cool to like in the nineties. Now it's cool. To, now it's cool to hate, and yes,
0: has uh, been surrounded by controversy, and and is not stopping. And we'll be getting into that later on because there's a few of controversies that. Like I
2: wrote a piece on this already on my on my own website, basically uh, just well about how, how it's it, it's easy to hate on him because he doesn't re have think like he has anything to hide as well as a person he will be like oh, yeah i had a re- relationship with Harvey Weinstein i don't know well yeah, that's what happened because like i don't have much to hide like ben affleck probably does but you know but it's just like, yeah, I, I can talk about this. And people were like, oh, he talks about it. He's evil.
0: Oh, he, he never hides behind excuses, which is admirable. Yeah, because be like- I, was, I was always trying to, like, even with the uh, unfortunate Uma Thurman accident that a lot of people keep bring it up, it's something that they already kind of sorted back then. And then Uma Thurman made it resurface. And they settled it once again in an amicable way. But it's nice to have the history of, like, you know, demonizing him as a director and he put her in harm's way. Yes, th- this happened. But it's... Again, like people want black and white, and Tarantino gives you life. He gives you gray, and he does the same thing with his characters. They're all horrible people, but also people who want to be good, and yeah. that's life. <laughs> that's <just> how <laughs> it is. Sometimes. people would
2: say, why, "Why? would I follow a character like Cliff Booth?" Even like in the book, and so he's a war hero. He's a he's a killer. He he's he's a, he's someone who who knows what it feels like to stab someone and look at the light in in their eyes just going dim. Uh, he knows what it feels like to take someone's life he knows what you know so he's he, for all intents and purposes he, he he kind of passes off as a monster right he like yeah. it does just his existence is ha- half the time is like like the hulk like he's trying to stay calm right so he doesn't do anything stupid but then it's um like people latch onto these things, and then they say, and then, and they'll just say, "Oh yeah, well that, that like why should I f- follow a character as a, a character like this?" Like people just buy toys with Darth Vader on it, and it's fine. Like just, you know, it, it, like it's it's just a character. Grow up. Yeah,
1: it's I think inherent to writing is that every character there is a semblance of the author in it, but that does not mean that the author is a part and part replicant
2: of that character. If Stephen King were a replicant of all the characters he wrote, we should be very concerned for the
0: man. Ouch! T- <laughs> but,
2: but but people used to accuse him of that. They did back in the then- day when it's like oh because he, he he but he was the author who kept putting these fucked up dreams and in, dreams into into kids' heads because he was I'm I know I should know because I picked up first I read I read Salem's Lot when I was eleven, so 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 yeah, I didn't get much sleep after that, but 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 you know it it's um like people like to like he would go on like joe rogan podcast and or like um what's his face mark maron mark maron and he will say well or something to the he was put something to the effect of uh well you know back in back in the day or like even before before, like 2019 sharon tate would have would like if you mentioned sharon tate people would think about the way she died. That's all p- people would be thinking, like 99% of people would just think "If, if who recognized the name would just be thinking about the Tate-LaBianca murders. That's it. Some some people would be thinking of like, oh, Valley of the Dolls, because they're just film nerds. But then most people probably wouldn't even know that she starred in anything. They, they would know she's an actress. She was married to Roman Polanski, and then she died in a horrible way, together with like a bunch of her friends.
0: And um, then yes, since we got actually on the on the topic of Sharon Tate, I'm curious to hear both of yours your history, we as weird as it might sound, with Sharon Tate. Like how she's, she's did dead, you came to know. Well, uh, well, <laughs> true, well how, did, how did you first come to I don't know, know about her story and had you watched other movies prior to watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with her? Um, has the movie actually changed you in some way, changed the portrayal of
1: Sharon Tate, how, how do you guys feel? I, you know what, my first experience of Sharon, like I knew what had happened, like I'd read of it, but I watched that awful The Killing of Sharon Tate movie The um, the Haunting of Sharon Tate, which is from uh, Daniel Farrands. it's awful it's real like B-movie schlock taking a pork at the real world, and it's awful, it's horrible stuff, but it's, if, if more people had seen that, they probably wouldn't have an issue with what Tarantino does. And I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with what he does. It's just that it has that real world connection. So in, inevitably, it is going to have some level of controversy to it. However, it's back to that point of where the writers get their ideas from and how much of a reflection are these characters of Tarantino. Tarantino writes from a place of genuine love for the genre and genuine love for the decade of he's adapting into his novel. I don't think he's writing with malice or any ill intent towards Sharon Tate or anybody in the book, but, you know, he obviously has to, you know, wary on the side of caution. I think he, he does a little bit, you have to remember this is just a prediction of what he thinks and also by and by and large, what his characters think. Cause eventually, and inevitably the characters is going to dictate where the story goes. And if that story is, going down to taking part at Bruce Lee and Steve McQueen, so be it, that is what his characters have done. He's not going to stop that approach, because well, why would he? It was rather entertaining, and I don't... For me, personally, it does no harm. I don't see Bruce Lee as any more or less of a person than I do. It's just a fictitious adaptation of a man. It's like Larry David and Curb Your Enthusiasm. We don't think any more or less of him. We don't actually think he acts and responds this way. It's We don't think the same of Bruce Lee. We don't think the same of Steve McQueen. We certainly don't think the same of Sharon Tate.
2: But he's he's not entirely fictitious at least bruce lee isn't i can mean, just to, just to quickly just put a wrinkle on this because it's based on these stories that these people he he was told right that the he hated stuntmen and then these are so, yeah so but then with, with sharon tate oh, it, it's an interesting one because i think honest to god i would probably say i may have seen maybe one film with her and that would be fearless Vampire killers when i was very very young and that's probably it and for me that she was more she she, she um, well, up, up until relatively recently, because then I had a, a I don't know, period of my life when I was interested in called serial killers. Like it's just historically speaking, uh, just like reading about um, about like Ted Bundy and then you know things like that. It was just uh, this morbid curiosity. is just. I don't know. I don't have to explain myself. I, I just like reading about all sorts of stuff, and that's one of them. So
1: <laughs> very normal reading about serial killers. Yes, yes. Yeah, it no. no need to explain yourself until you know they slap the cuffs on you, and ask where you were on a certain particular night.
2: You know, that's like, you know, no <laughs> proof. <laughs> like, no, but then like, Sharon Tate was basically then to me synonymous with with, with how she died, uh, and then I have to I have to say that no, well, and then I think. Before I watched the film, I also listened to. Um, I don't know if you guys listen to it, but if 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 not, shameless um, shameless sort of recommendation. You should listen to a podcast called "You Must Remember This." I don't know if you've, you've heard of this. I think it's like the, one of the most popular podcasts, like in the world. That's um, hosted and produced by this woman whose called uh, her name is Karina uh, Longworth. And then back in 2015, 16, she has a 10 part, se- she had a 10 part series about the Manson murders and basically just like a, the portrayal of 60s Hollywood. And then Charles Manson's plays in it, and in this whole in his family and, and and the murder of Sharon Tate and what it meant for the culture at large. It's brilliant. It's absolutely amazing piece of podcast. It's like 10 hours of, of, of listening. It's great. Um, But I came to realize and this is something that the book does differently to the film because the film is, is about Sharon Tate, whereas the book isn't, um, as in Sharon Tate is, is a symbol as in, okay, well, you, you have to bear with me on this. I'm sorry. I'm hijacking this. This isn't, this may take a while because I had, I have stuff to say <laughs> and then I have stuff to say, and then I need to kind of articulate somehow. So. 60s were a time of like free love the pill came out came into the culture i think in like early 60s whatever so like well, the conservative upgrade, upbringing kind of just came to a halt because young people were just openly rebelling against their, their parents and then hollywood was changing as well like culture was changing as and like people didn't want to watch the Santal epics people didn't want to watch the uh, musicals like um so from uh, in the in the world of cinema there was this sort of shift coming coming in the late sixties with the Graduate, The Easy Rider, Bonnie and Clyde, and later on with um, like Rosemary's Baby, and then and and then just. And this was the time like the between 1960s colonists in 1967 to 1969 there was this sort of shift towards things that young people liked. They wanted to see films like The Graduate, they wanted to see things like Bonnie and Clyde. They were violent, they were more immediate, they were they were talking to them as young people. And then, and then in this, and the film kind of, and, and then I think in the, in the film, Tarantino does that as in, as in he does it, I want to say purposefully, and that's, that's the first time he's ever, he's done this in this movie, because they're all about pop cultural references anyway, but this one isn't, as in he sees like the Spawn Ranch, which is, uh, this old, old timey movie set where they filmed all these Westerns of the fifties. It's invaded by hippies. It's invaded by a pest. Right, it, he sees this sort of, and even Rick Dalton's like fucking hippies everywhere, fucking dirty hippies, they smell, whatever. Like, so he's the old guard, and he sees this is the new thing coming. These, the, 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 the free loving hippies are coming, and they're taking over. They're like, uh, they're like a disease. They're like a virus, Right. slowly taking over. And then they're taking over the, the world that they know, and they're just reappropriating it for themselves, like you know, like the dumpster dumpster dive. They just they, it just it's just horrible. But so what then? What then happened is? Well, there's the whole story of how Charles Manson actually ended up going to the house that he did because he want he wanted to be a rock star. He desperately wanted to be a rock star. He he wrote a song that I think was on one of the um, uh, Beach Boys album. It was he wasn't credited because they rewrote the music around it, but then it's his song. Charles Manson wrote a song for the Beach Boys. Um, And then he was, uh,
1: sorry, it was Never learn Not to Love.
2: Yes. Right. So he, he did that. And I think he touches on this in the book as well, and it's in the podcast series as well, that he desperately wanted Terry Melcher to give him the time of day to actually introduce him to people he wanted to. But then he was also too late because he was like the folk musician. But then, People already had Neil Young. People already had Bob Dylan. No one wanted anymore. Um, so he was perpetually frustrated when then he cultivated this sort of family of people. Like he was also a, a misogynist and a racist to boot. Like he, he's not a great guy either. But then, um, so out of out of spite, he wanted to take revenge on people who denied him stardom that he thought he deserved, that, pe- that the world owed him. So by murdering, Sharon Tate accidentally, because she just happened to live in the house that Terry Mitchell used to used to rent. Uh, he killed the princess of old Hollywood. So she's, which makes the the whole story basically a fairy tale, as in like well, a dark fairy tale where there's big dragon, big ogre, comes in and he and he kills uh, the last no the last remaining hope of the old world reconnecting with connecting with the new because she was married to the youngest the young hotshot director who was bringing in the sort of the new vision into cinema Polanski was this hotshot superstar guy like you can't deny I know people will be like oh no but 1975 sit down you know uh, it's he in 1968 he was the guy he was, he, he was looked at the way Hitchcock was looked at in 1963. Like he was, a, he, 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 you can't imagine how much of a rock star he was in 1968. And then Manson by killing her in the absence of his, because he was that, he was in London, I think either, I can't remember if he was already shooting Macbeth or maybe he was back prepping for like the day of the dolphin or something like this that he then later abandoned because, well, his wife died. So he took a break. But so she was the the evolutionary link com- connecting the old cinema because she was starring in these like screwball comedies that were basically just lift, like lifted from the forties and fifties. She was this starlet trying to make 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 a living as a as a star in the old age Hollywood, and he was re-engineering Hollywood to be something else. And they were sort of the sort of the connecting evolutionary link, and he killed it. As a result, I mean, Poleski, but no, uh, Manson did. So he, so I don't, I don't want, I don't want to be hyperbolic, but he could, you could draw a parallel because after 1969, after that time, culture took a turn, and then everything got darker and grittier and and more violent. So you then have like Straw Dogs, you have Clockwork Orange, you have Taxi Driver. Like the new Hollywood basically just be, became, well, was catalyzed by, well, partly by this shift and then that makes and that makes an appearance in the film it doesn't make an appearance in the book which is interesting because it's almost an afterthought in the book it almost doesn't exist it's because it's not about Tate. the film is about Tate. the book is about rick dalton yeah we'll
0: realizing that he too. has
2: realizing he has talent even though he's a has been right so but then but so shanty is an interesting one to me because she's a she's an icon of cinema even though she didn't really have much of a life because her life was taken away from her prematurely but she's but but the fact she died and the manner in which she died in which she died was almost um i don't want to say that it this precipitated the change but it was part of the the shift towards something darker because well, I don't know if you guys know, but then you know, Manson tried to well, the, the fact that he wrote pigs everywhere. This was supposed to start a race war because they wanted the Black Panther to, t- to take the blame for this, the Black Panther movement. Um it was it's ridiculous. So it almost Helter looked, Skelter. Uh, yeah, Helter Skelter was supposed to be a race war when you know like you know people would rise against you know black people would rise against whites and then whites against blacks and then they would all kill each other and then that would leave and they would all kill each other off and that would leave Charlie Manson as the new Jesus. Like this was how how ridiculous this is,
0: he was it's a lot of drugs all well, well, to do to a mind. Well and calculated more than, as more well. than that <laughs> but yeah. yeah and calculated as well.
2: But it's it's so Sharon, Sharon Tate as a as a historical figure is an interesting one because on, on paper she didn't have much of an influence because she didn't have much of a, of a portfolio of work but she's the, in, in the fairy tale of, of Hollywood she's, she's a sacrificial lamb that turns the world into a hell pit that now that, that has never since been saved.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tragic story. Like, I, I It's only since something I've kind of always known. Like, I don't remember a specific point in time where I discovered it. It's one of those things that even pops up as a lot as references in various movies. So growing up, I, I knew of it. But I had a similar morbid period like you, Jakub, where I just lost myself in horrible, horrible stories of murder and suicides and whatnot when I was like 15 or 16, I believe. Um, and And this was one that shook me uh it's something it's a word that's being used by a lot of my people being shook this was legitimately shocking for me um i remember that i found like a website that went in detail of like what happened the night and everything that images it was just horrible um and and that's the unfortunate thing like she's she has always been tied with the murder and the fact that even you were like, yeah, I've seen Fearless Vampire Killers. And then the other movies, uh, uh, Valley of the Dolls, and you have- uh, Wrecking Crew. Wrecking Crew, and that's kind of and, it. Like, and then, and
2: a few pilots, I think.
0: Yeah, it's just Not very much. minimal stuff that never broke into any type of mainstream. It was never like great movies per se. But, but she was rising, it was even, I don't know, like to make a probably horrible comparison, like if someone like Florence Pugh stopped before she made Little Women or even before she made Midsummer, it's kind of like, you know, this rising star she just kind of disappeared. That's kind of similar probably. And even then she had bigger projects and better projects that Conchera and Tate did, unfortunately. But what, what I love about the movie and to an extent even the book, it is that he shows her alive, and this was controversial in Cannes because she doesn't do anything. She has less lines than her male co-stars. Oh my goodness! Hopefully Tarantino this. said, "I reject your hypothesis."
2: Well, because he didn't want to really explain. It to I mean, maybe it's difficult to kind of come up with a with a nice quip on the spot. But then, like on the Joe Rogan podcast, he basically was like he's, she spends her whole. It's two days, and she spends these two days all by herself. Like, who's she supposed to talk
0: to? Yeah, That's all by thing. herself, it's... leaving. Oh, obviously. I
1: think the, the, the issue is that people have projected what they want to happen. On mm-hmm. Well, what happens if she's alive? She'll probably just go around and do a bit of shopping, watch a film, and then prep for any the project. What do you expect her to do? Go to space? Like Chill. <laughs> there's, there has to be a level of realism. What can you feasibly do with someone like that? They are not going to go off in those two days and do something extraordinary. They're just hanging around because their husband is off in London and they're just waiting for them to come back. They've got parties to go to, they go to movies, they mm-hmm. chat with the public, like that scene, and I, I think that's adapted well in the book, where she goes to the cinema to watch uh, Wrecking Crew. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good scene in the book, and it's th- that's why I have no issue with the representation, chart. it's not as if her being alive in a work of fiction is insulting, it, and I understand that it would be if it was what, what was Tarantino doing with her, it's nothing. And that's the point of it. She's just going about her life. And
0: it's it's, yeah. in, it's, it's generally incredible. I think just the, the fact that in the movie you have the quick little, like the fun Great Escape, what if, what if Rick Dalton was in the Great Escape, which is cheeky and all that. But then when, when Sharon Tate goes to the movies to watch the Wrecking Crew, you're you're not seeing uh, Margot Robbie in CGI in the movie. You are actually watching the movie. You're seeing you're seeing e. Sharon on. Tate, yes, and and sh- she's there on the screen. She's alive. There's people in the audience who are laughing. There's people. I, I remember I watched it in the cinema twice. People laughed at the same times as the other audience did in the movie. It was delightful. I think it's the first time that. 95% of the audience members actually saw Sharon Tate acting. And I don't for the think... first time. For the first time, yes. I don't yeah. think anyone had before because, again, they're smaller movies and really hard Who well. Wrecking Crew? Come on. Beyond Valley of the Dolls is my favorite movie, says no one.
2: No, but there are um, people on Twitter who's like, well, what about Valley of the Dolls? Like, oh, come on. Like, you have seen Valley of the Dolls probably in 2020 because you have probably just. Found out that Chante did something else, than just dance. Yes.
1: People have yeah. probably seen Beyond Value of the Dolls more than Value of the Dolls, only <laughs> yes, because actually. Roger Ebert
2: wrote the screenplay. But then yes, yes. See here, there's in the, in the film, but in that very scene you you, you talk about, and I watched this again last night because I I couldn't stop myself.
0: I watched it two days ago. It's well, then, I can always watch this movie. It's an
2: amazing scene in the film In in the book as well. But it's an amazing scene when you, when you see this woman's sort of glee when she just oh they're laughing like as in like what I'm doing is working as in in, in, the, in the book you get details of like oh when she falls on her ass and then you're like oh I, you keep the champagne bottle up so you don't get you know like glass in your face and so you get this sort of behind this behind the sort of curtain detail and then, she was very
0: insecure as well about taking the role yeah, and yeah. All that. yeah but in in the film all you see is
2: her reacting not to the film but reacting to how people react so which is okay well, she's connecting her character to the audience and she sees that what she does for a living makes people respond makes people happy with th- this scene validates her as a, as a as a working performer as an artist yes and then what people took from this scene was her dirty feet like that's all this was oh my goodness oh the feet everyone just like jesus come on 20 percent of people have a foot fetish you're probably one of them anyway because you know that's
1: that's a horrifying <laughs> statistic <laughs> yeah. That,
0: that, that strikes fear in love. one person in five. <laughs> five. One in one, one in five, five
2: straight men.
1: True, actually, yeah.
2: Slightly less almost, uh, apparently, slightly less among game among gay men. So, just saying. One in five people need to be stopped. <laughs> no, but then that's <laughs> that's that's just one. Like, it, you see you see this scene and then you don't take this away because it's just you're just distracted by her feet. And I'm like, I
1: think hey, the, grow up. <laughs> the, the thing about it as well is I think the culture that surrounds Quentin Tarantino's discourse is ha-ha, he likes feet. That is essentially the discourse around it. And if you see a scene like that or you see the scene in Death Proof or you see the scene in From just, on, seen on.
0: Seen Death Proof. the School Dawn. In
2: Pulp in Kill Bill. In, 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 yeah. Eight
0: eight in Django are safe. Wow. safe. You say that. But then... <laughs>
1: <laughs> from the food fetish. The, the, the issue please. then is that it's the discourse is not about what that scene means, like in Once Upon a Time from Hollywood. That's a very strong scene. Mm-hmm. The, the The focus then is, haha, feet. Tarantino yeah. likes feet, and You're then it's the cycle continues.
2: Yeah. really. That the,
1: the detail of feet is, is strange, granted, but it's irrelevant to really what the core of the scene well, what's, is about. What's,
2: what's strange is how she how has she managed to have feet, if her feet this dirty when she was wearing boots. What
1: stranger is she's taking her shoes off at the cinema that's just a foul par. Isn't oh, she, it? You don't do that. You don't She's not wearing socks. the 60s.
0: <laughs> she has boots I and she's don't. Care not wearing if
1: it's socks. the 1960s or the <laughs> 2160s. You don't take your shoes off in any cinema in High, my country. No.
2: High boots, leather boots, no socks. Do you know I, she she and she, she took these boots off and I'm I'm, hap, I'm I'm happy for the entirety of the audience to actually stay awake. <laughs> <laughs>
0: No, oh, but... she was far away from everyone, so no one was uh, <laughs> was close enough. No, but then what's
2: what's important about Sharon Tate, at least in the film, because in the book, like the ending of the of the film is an is an afterthought somewhere in the first quarter of the film. It's like, oh, that one day when this guy this guy showed up and he said he 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 was there to do the devil's business, and I and I just punched him in the noggin, and then my and oh no, that was a, that was in the in the little sub chapter in the backstory of the dog, right? Yes. Which, which is, is great, by the way. It's a bold oh, yeah. choice, but that's pretty much what this novelization's for, right? Because well, like, you just see the dog, and it's just like you—you're meant to kind of just project certain things because the dog's of mm-hmm. a certain breed, so it's muscular and it's, it's probably dangerous, and then you know, and does does its business, and then in, bo- in the book you kind of find out, oh, the dog is an actual killer as well.
1: It adds detail to the film, which is mm-hmm. where I'm rather skeptical on someone diving into the book first. I don't think that's yes. It, I... it, it's possible, but you're not going to get much out of it. If you um, haven't seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I doubt you could to enjoy I the
2: novelization. No yeah. one should read the book before watching the film. The, the, book, the, yeah. book, is an, the book is an added layer of, of detail and appreciation to a film yes. that you like. And if, I, I would say, if you watched the film and you didn't like the film, skip the book. Like you're not going to make You're not going it, like to fall in love yeah. with the film all of a sudden as well
1: and i think it's it's rather telling that the, the, i mean this is one of the rare occasions where it is the other way around usually you read the book and think well that was quite good in my life the film
2: well but that's it's, novelization, right that's a different size that's
1: novelization this is not it's the other word for it what's it called um, adaptation adaptation there we go it's in the because title of the I... podcast
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> sorry but i've had a few cocktails and a few vodka cooks can't re- <laughs> i can't remember every little specific detail but my point is the only other one I can think of, and I've not read it, but it's Back to the Future, was adapted into a novel.
2: Well, there's, there's a few. There was there's Back to the... the Future, there was Batman. Whoever well, have read the Star
0: Wars one, I've read the Dawn of the Dead one. Oh,
1: the Star Wars ones were insane. It's Star Wars and The Simpsons I used to read a lot as a kid. And it wasn't because I was invested in either universe, either Star Wars or The Simpsons. But it was just something to read. It was a little extra of something I somewhat enjoyed. You know, you, I mean, you yeah. want
0: to live in the universe more. That's, you do, and I
1: think yeah. that's that's the that's the redeeming quality of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. For people that do like the movie, and there's a lot of people out there that do, it's a very good companion piece. To think, I really enjoyed that. I didn't quite get my fill after three hours. I quite like a book. Yeah, and I I do think it serves its purpose well. It's it's fun, but it's it's for me it was kind of forgettable. I can't pick out one scene where it's like one incredible scene that really shaped the narrative as to what I think of the character. I'll get one
2: in a second. Oh, we'll get get to it in the end, actually. (laughs) No, but then there's one thing in the, like, the film is structured around a few things, but it has a progressing narrative, right? Mm -hmm. As in, as in there, oh, there's two narratives. As so, no, three because there's Rick Dalton's journey to as a cowboy. There's Cliff Booth who just kind of happens to wander into the Charles Manson murders, and there's the actual Charles Manson murders, right? Uh, that well, event, and then in the film, they do spend like the entire last act is based. Well, you, you feel like this whole thing is building up to the Tate murders, right? Because just details being filled that oh charlie's gonna dig you and then realize oh that's charles manson oh that oh he's 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 in here he's interacting with the characters that i'm following he's just in the background and now now these people are kind of merging more and more and more and more and more and more and then it goes into this sort of final recounting of the evening which is minute by minute and say well these people parked up in their in 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 their car she fucked off they forgot the knife they came into the house and then it's a wrong house because well, Rick Dalton's fucking drunk and he just told them to fuck off with their with their with their big noisy car so they decided oh let's kill the, let's kill the cowboy star let's kill the people who taught taught us how to kill because all we saw was violence on TV so they Make changed their mind and they fail because the TV's killing them right but then that's the twist because when you watch this film and halfway through anybody who even vaguely knows who Shantae was, will be realizing, oh, this is what we're building up to. We're, we're building up this massive climax when this woman's gonna die and he's gonna, and he's gonna revel in this sort of, in this violence and in, in this horrible orgy of violence that, that this whole thing was, because it was absolutely just horrifyingly bloody and, and, and vicious. And then you just know what to expect because it's just an element of culture. You know what happened. You know, this woman's pregnant. You know what they did to her. You know <laughs> what they did to her friends. And you're expecting this to happen. And he subverts his expectation at the very end. And he serves you a cocktail of violence just targeted at the perpetrators and then even even not that i'd say like audiences like oh he hates women because he gets this woman just like, no he hits this woman against the wall like seven times no it's it's not a violence against women it's a violence against someone who who in the real life killed sharon tate by stabbing her 17 oh sorry 47 different times well right? yeah, the so subversion... this is, i'm watching this and i feel righteous revenge like fucking yes yeah you, you killed a motherfucker yeah (laughs) because you just feel like yes the princess lives at least in this film in this fairy tale the princess lives and i'm happy for it and but but the book doesn't have it the book is a companion piece doesn't have this sort of momentum doesn't have this build-up it ends on a different note
0: well that was actually originally tarantino's intention for him the movie was supposed to be first act second act third act and an epilogue which would be the night of the murder but mm-hmm. while he was editing the movie, he was like, this is shit, it's too long. And after the spawn ranch, there's no turning back. So he just cut everything with like a massive machete. And he's like, third act is actually the murder. And that's it. Well, he like, has the whole match
2: with the, um, the Italy sort of thing, which is also symmetrical yeah. because you see um, Rick Dalton has the hair like Roman Polanski has in the beginning. They're Coming the back airport. from the airport. It's all symmetrical. Like... He, she, his wife is Shantate, he's Polanski and they're in the house. And then, and they fight back, right? But then the the book ends on a different note because now in the, I mean, I, this is the best decision he did for the film to remove all this nonsense because it works in a book because the book now becomes like a meditation. A lot, because he then he, there's a whole scene with his stepfather in there, Kurt Zastupil. Mm. That's his stepfather, right? He was the pianist. And then he talks about, himself oh like, yeah well my, 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 my kid Quentin would love your the autograph he he pays homage he connects his world to your world to our world and he says like this we're all part of the same like part of the same game of trying to kind of just score jobs and and and, and hopefully someone will like it and then it just makes this dream kind of like I don't know it, it's almost it's touching like i read the ending of the book and i was touched by mm-hmm. how how delicate it was It was no yeah it, it, it was almost and especially how it ends on this on the lines with the, with the girl it's just amazing i just it doesn't like wouldn't work in a film for in a thousand years no one would have made, made it work that way but it it and he basically just embraced the fact that he's working in a novel and he just works worked very well into it so i'm happy yeah
0: Yeah, in the the movie, it would have killed the pacing of everything just having this elongated dialogue scene, which is unfortunate because I I would love to watch those scenes, like with uh, little Julia Butters acting her ass off with Leonardo DiCaprio. And that's, again, like you said, the movie is about, ultimately, about Sharon Tate and those murders and everything. Meanwhile, the novel is about just Hollywood and the changing of times and, and acting and the beauty of, of making movies. Again, it's a luxury. That's where it's all, it's all building up to. The, the luxury and the beauty of making dreams, of, of of making magic real for people, to give them something to almost a reason to live for. And it's it's poignant. And it's not something I was expecting. I kept Expecting, like with each passing chapter towards the end, I was like, "Are we actually going to s- s- read about the murders, or we're just going to accept what was written like 10 15 chapters ago. And it, that's it, yeah. You just you accepted it because it's not about that. Well, it ends, about it, it ends in
2: February as well, right? Yeah, it ends in, at, a, at a party. So basically, just the, the remainder of the film is not in the book, right? It's only in an afterthought. So it's, I don't know. I know the the book has its flaws, and he kind of writes the way he writes. He writes in his own voice, and when when he becomes the Bruce Lee, I can't I can't ima- imagine anything else but Bruce, but Quentin telling me this specifically. Like I, I I was sitting with him in here, and he was trying to tell me how cool this is.
0: Do You too like the portrayal of Bruce Lee? In yeah, the but then book and film. But it,
2: but it works. the The, the way <laughs> the book comes to a close is just. It's poignant and actually tells you that, oh, yeah, this book is not about the Sharon Tate murders, even though Sharon Tate is a prominent character in there. It gives you hope because, you know, well, you know what happens in the film that you're still allowed to live in the fantasy. But it also reminds you that uh, well it's about Rick Dalton's embracing that he needs to change if he if he if he is ever to have a life as an actor and then because an eight-year-old girl teaches him how to how to act and be serious because he has to ditch the pompadour he has to look like a hale's angel he has to you know go and work in italy even though he hates italians for some reason it was like how, how many have you seen i don't know fucking enough like jesus
0: and westerns <laughs> fucking suck
2: yeah <laughs> Sergio, Sergio, who i'm like yeah. it's good that he has a friend in C- cliff booth who actually you know like actually watches the films <laughs> And he likes most of them too
1: <laughs> and i suppose that's the like the beauty of it though is that we learn those details through those early moments and like nicolo said those are the off-putting moments that are really going to steer who likes and dislikes us if you've got an entire chapter detailing the likes and dislikes of cliff booth's films then you're going to definitely turn people away but it is worth it for that detail later on when it comes into play with that sergio Capucci joke and with the the later moments of rick dalton as an actor he's passed his time He's had his bit, and by the sounds of it, one of the reasons for that is that he's not invested in the films around him. He does not watch these things. He's not aware of what is relevant at the time. And an eight-year-old girl has to tell him what it is.
2: Well, that's that's the sort of what I what I said. Like, Hollywood of the time was not aware of what the young kids like, what the what the audiences want. They were like, we know how to make westerns, we make westerns. And then it turns out that if you want to make westerns, go to an Italy and show and and see how Sergio Leone makes westerns. And then all of a sudden, like. This is how you make good westerns because the heroes are not are, are not white and the and, and villains are black, or everything's in shades of gray. And if you want to show a villain, you get Henry Fonda to shoot a kid in the face in the first five minutes of, of Once Upon a Time in the West, just to establish that he's a bad guy, right? He's coming into a realization all of a sudden that okay, well, that this this is how times will change, and he has to change with them. He has to embrace the method acting, he has to embrace taking this seriously it's not just a job that he can rehearse the lines and fall into a drunken stupor and then wake up and and covered in his own vomit and go to the set like he has to actually put some work in right
0: yeah so so would you guys say that because this is a point of contention for some people but who's the ultimately who's the protagonist of of the story
1: i think it's cliff booth mainly because we get a lot of detail for him i think it's a toss-up between cliff booth and rick dalton but i think cliff booth for me is sort of the the guy that dominates the piece with the most integral moments i think when i when i think back to my time reading it it's sort of the big events for me are rick dalton yes he had that scene with the eight-year-old girl I, i i remember more the impact of it rather than the dialogue itself where with cliff booth you've got his role as an enforcer and a stuntman, you've got the revelation about his wife, which I don't think was necessary, but I appreciate that he's tried to do something with it rather than just Mm. allude to it. I think the strength of Tarantino's work here is that it it doesn't feel like he's cleaning up loose ends, but because there weren't many loose ends in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and if there were loose ends, they were rather small. He just wants to go back here and add detail to where he felt he didn't have time. Because like you both mentioned, he cut a lot from that film. He cut Tim Roth out of that film. Completely. He did. He did. He's a battler. It's a travesty. But at the same time, it's it is great that he has the opportunity to actually go back and do something like that because I mean if if you think about directors who were given the second chance to put detail in, it never usually works like Zack Snyder's Justice League. There are times where it is necessary. But even this, this isn't this is not something that you need to read to understand once upon a time in Hollywood the film. This is here if you want more details about Cliff Booth and Rick Dalton? And I think, like Jakob said, Sharon Tate is very much the focus of the film. Here, she's—I don't know—she is more of a.
2: She's a presence. Yes, mm-hmm. she's
1: a presence. Like, I mean, even mm-hmm. Manson a bit is a presence. We get more of the whole—he wants to be like his hero, Bob Dylan. than well, that, Yeah, that's, rather... there's the scene where he goes more...
2: through the uh, through the house to the house of um, what's his face, the landlord. Right, yes, yes, in the yeah. book, there's a whole scene when he talks to him,
0: right? which is also present in the, the very few deleted scenes that he actually added mm-hmm. in the Blu ray, but it's not a very few he scenes, cut, he cut
2: them out, right? It's very because it actually refocuses. So, to answer your question, I'd say I'd say I think the film's about Cliff Booth hmm. because you can see he's clearly the hero, he kills the baddies, even though we'll oh, go. Well, the lady walks in, walks in, walks screaming into a swimming pool, and then Rick Dalton comes at her with a flamethrower. It's just a nice touch, but she's for <laughs> all intents and purposes already dis- disposed of, right? It's not going to Cliff- last long. <laughs> Cliff Cliff Booth saves the day. He saves the cheerleader and saves the world, right? And then he-, he even gets, I think, stabbed and shot or whatever. And then he's in the in the ambulance. He get gets waved goodbye. He's like the hero. Just oh yeah, he's going back into the ambulance, right? The book ends on a scene with Rick Dalton rehearsing lines over the phone, and then realizing then that they, you know, that they're having good. He's having great chemistry as a as a working actor with an eight-year-old girl. And then the and the book ends with what? And the next day on the 20th Century Fox backlot, on the set of Lancer, the two actors knock them dead. Not Cliff Booth. The two actors. It's about the book's about Rick Dalton. The film is about cliff booth to well, in my opinion like you can free, uh, we can we can disagree on this
0: yeah Tar- tarantino disagrees on that <laughs> i but, think in the i think mark Maron podcast but, was talking about no no it's it's well, there's, more,
2: there's more detail on cliff booth because he clearly is an interesting character but i think the the the, the biggest arc in the film in the book is rick dalton's
0: yes Even in the film, in a certain sense, like uh, how he changes and grows. He kind of plays in the whole, like, dichotomy of the actor and the stuntman, because in the end, it's always the actor who gets the credit, and the stuntman is the one who does all the dirty work for the things. He's the one, actually, like you said, gets stabbed during a fight and does all of the fighting, basically, in the end. He's the one who's going around doing Rick Dalton's business. But, yeah, I, I... well, I like but... to see this as like a, a it's about both of them, not just about one or the other. But if I probably had to pick, I probably would go with Rick Dalton because it does, even in the film, it does end with him entering the house of Sharon Tate and probably going on to have another wonderful career. Um, just making great movies maybe. Who knows?
2: Well, He's I'm the, sure. he's, the uh, he's the old world that now entering the world of the new because he's invited yeah. to the party in, in Roman Polanski's house. Is one pool party away from starring in a Roman Polanski movie? Exactly, Rick but fucking Dalton. That's the
1: thing about Rick Dalton, though, is that I think the comparison, majorly, for me between Cliff Booth and Rick Dalton is Cliff Booth has moments, whereas Rick Dalton has an arc. Cliff yeah. Booth has he's mm-hmm. got the dog, he's got the stunt story, he's got the Bruce Lee story.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Rick Dalton is about a man that is coming to terms with his inability to adapt to a new layer of Hollywood, and I think that's done well in both the film and.
2: the risk of sounding provocative i would maybe say would would you guys agree that maybe in the fact that cliff booth is getting more character wrinkles in the book and then more attention in the book may be partially i I don't want to accuse him of of being reactionary but maybe could it be inspired by the fact that he thinks he needs to explain himself because of the backlash he got over the film how, how cliff booth is just been misunderstood by audiences because it's like, oh, he's a misogynist. Therefore, Tarantino's a misogynist. Look at what he's doing to this woman. Well, I yeah. So now you give him a backstory that you know, just these it, offhanded scenes where he hands out already a bottle, or when he uh shoots two mafiosos in the face in the, in in a the restaurant. It's brutal, which is brutal, but the scene's great. It's very well yeah. written as well. But you know, so it's um. I, I, I kind of feel like the, on some level this could be it as in like he has so many moments because he feels like he needs to explain himself otherwise people will just still accuse him of something but then he's he probably has already realized that people will accuse him of whatever just because I, it's cool to accuse him of, of stuff
0: I, I wonder how much of the book he, he had already written before starting the screenplay because mm-hmm. I, I think the structure was there he probably changed small things I don't I I, I don't know It's never been particularly, from what I read and heard, he hasn't really talked much about his creative process with this, like how much writing he got done before starting the screenplay. Because if he says that the script as well was supposed to be with the epilogue and then he changed it in the editing to the third act, I think he had already planned all of those things out and probably thought, okay, we don't really need to see those things for Cliff. In a film, it works better this way. I don't know.
2: Do you think he's an architect or is a panzer?
0: Probably architect.
2: Do you think he know. like plots everything out in in advance?
0: Probably, just to make it work. I don't think he's one of those guys who generally goes into the editing booth, not knowing what to do. But he's open oh, in, to in, changing as, a, as his... a writer. As a writer, as a writer, think? I f- I think so. I think I think because there's a clear sense of progression through the novel. Yeah, and, and especially
1: considering this is a novelization, there is already that structure there. For it's he yeah. can pick and choose what he wishes to grab from the film, but at the same time he knows where he can add extra details, which I think really lends itself to what he wants to do with this, which is essentially add more detail to a project he's worked on. And he does that. He, he takes all the important scenes that he would like to discuss from the film and he discusses them. I think his intentions are successful. I just think the way in which he writes it is not as powerful or as engaged as the film it's still a fun read and i keep using that word fun it is a fun read Mm -hmm. and it's it's a fun film as well but with the film i feel more inclined to engage with these characters i feel more inclined to sort of think what they're thinking and know what their intentions are with the book i feel like it's There's something stopping me from completely throwing myself at it and saying i love this book it's fantastic i think it's a good book i think it's fine
0: do do, do you think maybe something something maybe related also to because that's that's how i was feeling about a couple scenes is that in the movie there's a more well the, the point of view is always focused on sharon tate cliff booth and rick dalton and in the novel, it changes perspective a lot. And there's some scenes, the one that surprised me the most reading the novel, novel version was the Spawn Ranch sequence. Because in the film, it's all pretty much all from Cliff Boots' perspective. Meanwhile, in the novel, it's from Squeaky's point of view, who's inside the house and, oh, he's coming towards us. And, oh, there he is at the door. And there is just leaving like there's no tire that's been flattened there's no hearing the dialogue between him and the various girls it's an interesting choice and, and and I think that's also what helps in differentiating the novel making it feel less like a novelization and more like its own thing its own creature because it's giving you something you've already had but different in a way that's fresh because you have the movie. If you, if you want Cliff Booth is a badass a spawn ranch, and if you want attention, you have the movie. But in the book, it's I like that we we get to know Squeaky, beautiful scenes in the novel, which was uh, which was interesting. It gives more depth, like we talked about, to various characters who were a bit not forgotten, but just kind of very secondary on the sideline in the film.
2: What well, the, the uh, flat tire thing being missing. I think it shifts focus away from well, building the uh, the fact that he's a badass. You don't really need this in the book. You already know he killed like mm. six sixty Italians a day in Sicily or something like that, right? Wh- whatever, like, whatever the number was. And then when he was in the Philippines, like the you know, like the Japanese soldiers were kind of afraid of him because he was just decapitating them like left or right and center, right? When he wasn't, yeah. So you don't really need this reaffirmation that he's he means business, right? Mm-hmm. What this scene gives you in the book is to focus on the fact that he goes and visits wh- who he thinks is his old friend and he doesn't recognize him. And it's like, okay, it's, you know, that means, yeah. Well, like these connections count for shit in here. Like, it's just uh, like, we all go grow older and like this guy's blind and then he's probably just happy to have sex with, with this, this, this young woman who just, well, for all intents and purposes, just uh, taking, taking care and abusing him in the same way sentence right but she loves him well so she says <laughs> but but then but it is kind of just in the film at least partially delivered from their perspective because you see it, like when they go into the ranch the the perspective shifts to the house as they're watching television and then there are these scenes from the house and then kind of just sh- focus shifts to cliff mm mm-hmm. But um but it's not, not entirely and then like you don't get the scene when Squeaky makes uh, Bruce Dern or George George Span breakfast, right? Like she makes him eggs and then she berates him because he's just you he can't he can't do this properly because he's blind or whatever. So it's you know <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, well, weirdly enough, for, for being something that kind of wants to demystify and take power away from the Manson family, at least the film. I like how the novel humanizes these girls a bit or it makes you understand why they would become they could get manipulated rather easily by manson in this appeal which is something that like you mentioned the haunting of sharon tate you and i don't know if you've seen before we have the film charlie says from mary heron the director of american Psycho, which came out in 2018 and barely anyone watched this for good reasons because Are you saying this is an
2: episode thing
0: no this is a uh, dog shit episode we gotta get a through to... torso first everyone let's let's hold our true, horses here. true but I, I, I actually saw this movie back in in uh, venice they had a premiere of it it was like on the sideline and i watched it it has matt smith as charles manson <laughs> and that should of tell you everything people. <laughs> with a horrible wig and one of the things about that film that. I would per- personally would say that's like, if people found Once Upon a Time in Hollywood Offensive and whatnot, watch Charlie Says. I think the way it treats the Manson girls, it's all about them after the murders and how they're relieving the memories of what happened and Charles Manson and blah, 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 and everything. I get to see what happened. And that movie actually shows the murders, for instance. Really? It's, oh. Yes. Yes. Oh. Like when she, it's focused on the girl when she's stabbing is like, no, it shows other murders as well. it's like, no, no, we don't need this. We don't need this. And the shocking thing, like you mentioned the way Tarantino kills off the characters. It's in the movie, they're horrible. They're ridiculous. He makes fun of them. Again, it takes power away from them. That's what I Mm -hmm. like because it's always been about the fear of the Manson family. Oh God, what's going to happen? It's another Manson murder situation, another Manson family. And they're just ridiculed by Cliff Booth. Like, nah, it was a name dumber than that. And I was like, Rex, Tex, nah, whatever. It's he just it's... laughs
2: in his face because he's high as fuck as well. Oh, man. Like, <laughs> I always
0: talk about catharsis on this podcast. That scene is immense catharsis. Like, it gives me chills just from the, <laughs> from how jo- much joy I get, which might sound deranged, but I don't care. But in, Meanwhile.
2: In, in the cinema, when when she gets a kind of dog food sh- job, <laughs> just thrown in her face <laughs> Breaks
0: her nose.
2: like people people ridicule this because oh he's just re- oh it's just violence for sexual violence no this was catharsis because i was i was fearing the worst It's like oh my god this is this is how cliff Bush is gonna end no the manson family doesn't make it out alive from from here
0: and you and, laugh you don't expect it to be like that
2: but you laugh She's... with a, affirmation Shock. like it's kind <laughs> of like yeah <laughs> you show them cliff
0: yeah and, and, and the, the problem with, with the freaking Charlie says is that it spends the entire movie humanizing these women and making them understand that they are, I mean, spoilers for the movie, but no one cares. And that they are like, yeah, they committed the murders and accept that you fucked up. And the final scene is a massive middle finger to these women, where it re- where it shows again a move a scene earlier where like a biker was like, "Hey girl, come with me away from Manson," and she's like, "Nah, I'm gonna stay here." And it shows the scene again, only with the girl actually leaving Manson, and basically saying, "You always had choice. It's a, it's a, ultimately it's your fault that you committed all these murders," which is questionable, very very questionable. And I think Tarantino's not. Having that's like humanizing these girls a little bit more in the novel as well as avoiding that in the film works much better
2: i'd say yeah. uh, if i may quickly you should probably listen to the uh your, you must remember this uh, series on, on on the charles manson murders because uh she goes in there into exquisite details on the psychology of what's happened. And then he's basically, he was basically running a cult, right? So he was holding massive power over these women. uh, Especially that most of them were underage as well. Um, And in the book, Tarantino gets into this by proxy, as in, uh, he doesn't get to it um, specifically because I I think he knows this is not his place to make, uh, make light of this. But he makes these comments when I think Cliff Booth was is, is in like I can't remember where when he just talks about like briefly becoming a pimp and then someone tells him like what being a pimp is like.
1: But he was in France.
2: Yeah, but the um, but the but if you read or listen to how Charlie Manson ran his or well, quote unquote family, that's pretty much mm. what it was. You know, it was like. Holding this this massive power over these people, and then she, you know, the Charlie says you say, oh, that's pretty much what they, you know, it, he he was Jesus to them. Um, and then mostly, I mean, a part, a good part of this was the sexual power he held over them, like they well, he was using them as in like he was he would be like going to like if you want if you wanted to go into a I don't know. Um, a recording session to just impress someone he would take one of these 15 year old girls and then and pawn them off to someone so that they would have sex with some with some big shot producer to you know to give him privileges that he wanted um and then they were doing this in exchange for for sexual favors he would give them as well so he was essentially like to to dumb it down not necessarily i don't want to dumb it down i don't want to i don't want to boil this down to just sex but this was part of this like he was he was a pimp with a weirdly warped psychology slash philosophy on on, and that was also kind of just targeting very vulnerable young women. So, in in the book, he doesn't get into it. In the film, he does into to a little extent, but I think he's just leaving it out because this just opens a whole different discussion. I think because Charlie Manson in there is kind of like it's it he it would give him more power, and I think it's best. I think he's best sort of neutered that way because he's just a fuck up he's just a guy who doesn't he who doesn't even know where terry moucher lives that's what he is and he just lives in these stories oh charlie will will dig you well you never meet him like because probably if cliff booth met him he'll probably break his nose
0: and thankfully never meets him like i know some people were hoping that maybe charles manson would come in the final scene and get killed that would have made it a proper oh, yeah. cartoon <laughs> Like you but, wish. Yeah. Well, you wish, but, but
2: then it make no. It, I'm I'm satisfied with the film how it ends. I'm satisfied, and with the book how it ends. I'm satisfied, mm-hmm. and I'm satisfied with how little attention he pays to Tex Watson, and, and he it's he's an afterthought. Afterthought. He's barely in the, mentioned in, a, in, a cha- in the novel, it, right? Yes. it's he's an afterthought in a chapter about a dog, and the dog's as a badass. <laughs> Brandy. Brandy.
0: Brandy dog. Uh, and this, yeah, we can start wrapping up. Um, I would love to know you guys, what are, for both the film and the novel, which things might differ actually, but what are your favorite characters and what are your favorite scenes or scene per novel and film?
1: One of my favorite scenes in particular is more because of what it shows about Tarantino's writing rather than it being uh, my favorite scene. And it is that last scene, it's that last line. brings us that simplicity that tarantino writes with because he's here to give detail to a story he already portrayed he wants to do it simply he knows what he wants to say and he's not going to use like fluffy descriptive language he's going to be straight shot straight plain and cut like ernest Hemingway would and it's such a simple direct approach and i, I do appreciate that on the whole and i think it it lends itself well to the likes of cliff booth Where you've got those little fragments of story those little he was a stuntman he was the enforcer here's a few examples of it here's where it kicked off here's where he is now it's such a simple pattern but it's an effective one because we learn more about the character it's interesting information and it's detail that we didn't need but it is nice to have it which is why i think cliff booths he certainly has the most interesting moments but i wouldn't say thematically or uh, in the sense that he he's not the most depthful character, he just has the sort of, the liveliest scenes. He has the Bruce Lee scene, he has the killing his wife scene, which is explained. He has those moments of uh, where, where there wasn't much detail in the film, he has it all here. Which does detract from the fact that Rick Dalton's arc in the book is quite strong. It's the man realising he can't act the way he does now because it just wouldn't fit with the times. So I I do think the the flashback to Cliff Booth with his wife on the port and I think Dalton at the end practising his lines with the girl, I think those are the two strongest scenes in the book because they highlight how well Tarantino can write, but it also highlights that this is detail that he finds interesting. It doesn't matter if we find it interesting, this is what he wants to write and he has the power to do so, which is, at this, as well as being... Excellent to have. It is also dangerous. It is something that needs to be guided very carefully. And I think he does get the gist of that. I think he does guide it more or less to where it should be. And he gets from this story what he really wants to get, which is more detail for uh, his latest project, which, which is fine. That's no qualms about that. Uh, in the film, I, I I like Brad Pitt's portrayal of Cliff Booth. However, where I don't quite get the gist of it is sort of his relation to the manson family and those that were following him at the time i think that's better explained in the book where it adds those little lingering details so for the film i would say probably dalton and that's more due to the scenes again it's the same scene as the book where he's rehearsing his lines to get advice from a a child he is essentially the future of hollywood it's it's a very telling scene, not because of how it's written there, but because of how DiCaprio portrays it. He portrays it with an empathy that wouldn't really settle in with the typecast macho men of the 1960s. He portrays it with, this is a man on his sort of last legs, trying to make a big difference for his career, and he's taking advice from an eight-year-old child.
2: For me, I'd say in the film, Cliff Booth is my favorite character, especially this, film, because it's mysterious. Like you don't, like you don't know shit about him. Like it's just like he does parkour for some reason like he can he jumps like an absolute athlete into onto roof. i don't know why i mean the book kind of gives you like okay well, that's how because he's a navy seal or something like this but you know you get these these details and i mean well you, you get a character is, is just like we on on the gems podcast we t- we've recently been talking about charisma all the time he's a charismatic character like I, I look at him, I want to be out, I want to be around him. I want to spend time with this guy. He's he's just a presence. that I want to be around. He's just great. Um, and it's in the in the book. My favorite character is probably I would be Dalton, but some a little part of me wants to tell wants to say that well, Trudy as in Mirabella is will be the the runner up because she's, she's much better written in the book than she is in the film. Or maybe it's part of the perf- it's partly in the performance because you know there's there's also this like, kids are kids, but I'd say Rick Dalton is is an amazing character, especially how he's written and how much of an arc he has when you know, he goes from I don't know, rejecting the idea of being the Steve McQueen that Italians can get to uh, embracing that he's he can be all chatterhand and whatever. So so he's. He's he it it's a, it, it, he's a great character and very well written. So in terms of scenes, I would say my favorite scene in the film. <sighs> so many to choose from because I love like, I like quite a lot in there. I mean, as you may have tell, already guessed, like kind of you know, I, I just love this guy. But the scene that gets me every time is the scene when they film the episode of Lancer, and then he, <laughs> I mean it's it's a whole sequence when he forgets his lines. And then, uh, and and they break the illusion. Then they re in the illusion. It's amazing. And then he goes into his into Australia and just like throws his <laughs> throws his hat. And there's this montage of going like do 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 fucking. And just like embarrass yourself in front of these goddamn people. It's just <laughs> it's just such a great scene. It's not in the film. It's in the book. It's just amazing. It's just I love this. And in the book, the the best absolute best scene well apart from the fact how they read the lines over the phone is the scene in the bar when he talks about how he almost well how he dispels the myth of how he almost got the role in the uh, great escape and how this kind of interplays with his own stepfather it's just such a touching scene i love this yeah
0: yeah there's like yeah p- picking a favorite character it's it's hard and it's, yeah, like Cliff Booth and Rick Dalton, they're the go to characters. So, to, to to go a little different direction, like in the movie, for me, Marvin Schwartz, like Al Pacino in this, it's one of those characters. It's just all like. All the killing. Oh, oh I love that stuff. All the killing, you know. <laughs> just all like, all you know, the killing. It's, it's what, what is it? Like six minutes of screen time, seven minutes of screen time? Yeah. And it's, owns them. Honestly, I would say that almost every actor owns their scenes. Even the, the Manson girls, they're all played by like Hollywood daughters of Hollywood royalty and they're not good actors. But in the context of the film, it works. But yeah, Al Pacino just slays me. I love the opening of the film every single time. It just puts me in the mood instantly. Um, and It's probably my favorite character in, in that. But even in the book, the way he's expanded, the way he's just direct with Dalton just telling him, "Yep, you just got to do this. It's still over choice. Otherwise, you're not going to have a career after this." And meanwhile, in the book, I like how Jim Stacy, the the lead of Lancer, is is expanded upon. Um, a person who actually turned out to be pretty pretty bad in real life as well. But we're not going to talk about that. Uh, in the context of the book, is is lovely. Um, oh, really? I, yes, yes. <laughs> it was like in a motorcycle accident. And I think he lost his legs, and oh. he became a pedophile. <laughs> so there's, there's a, it's rough. If you want to read up on that, you can do... A, you can, there's a big rabbit hole on the Internet. Look for Jim the Stacey. reason for him
1: becoming a pedophile the motorbike crash?
0: Well, was he that made it
1: sound
2: it, like he lost his it, legs, and, he was like, and then he
0: became a pedophile. <laughs> it came afterwards, yes, the accusation, ac- accusations and all that. So, but it doesn't matter, in the, in the book, um, I like how we get to spend more time with him. It kind of made me wish there was more of him in the film because I love Timothy Olyphant. But even then, what, what we get of him is, is more than enough. But like and like you mentioned, uh, Jakob, just the entire back and forth at the bar at the end and he's there as well, It's it was very fun. Um, in terms of scenes, like film, again, so many to choose from. But another one that slays me every time, it's the FBI scene when they're watching it on TV. And it's just, kind of, again, like once upon a time in Hollywood, the film is a hangout movie. And that's literally the part where you're just hanging out with the characters. You could cut it, nothing would really change, but it's just so much fun. It's almost like mystery science theater. You could watch like two hours of these guys just talking over this episode of FBI. Uh, and meanwhile, in the book, you mentioned it briefly, Jakub, but the Aldo racing when Cliff Booth is there at the hotel, they're filming the movie and Aldo is in his room, just sad and old and alone. And he spends some time with him. And they see that almost as like who Rick Dalton will become, could become, probably won't become by the choices that he's made because they talk about like him being actually bipolar, I think, right? And he wasn't diagnosed at the time because he didn't exist. Um, they talk about the alcoholism that he was suffering from. And it's one of those scenes that could have easily been played more for laugh in the book, but it's, it's, it's very tender. It's very human. It's very tragic. Like that's, that's the end of the old Hollywood. Like that's literally seeing classic actors just die and be forgotten by time. And it's, it's bittersweet and it comes near the end of the novel which makes it even more powerful. So those are easily my, my, my favorite scenes. And ultimately, like finally, the, the big question, do you think that the book is better than the film or vice versa? What is your ultimate verdict? Are they on the same level? One is better than the other? Jakob, why don't you go first? I, I, in this, you know, in,
2: I think in my, many cases, you could probably give, I, I could give you a straight answer. I can't in this case. I think these two exist together, and then I think you can see you can you can disregard the the book and just just have the film, but you can't have the book and not have the film, which probably makes makes you, the, the film is more complete. It but yeah, I'd say the the book's power isn't isn't that it makes the film much richer it gives gives depth to the characters that they may have not have gotten the depth that they deserved and then it gives um tarantino time to spread his wings and just tell you about what he loves which is cinema and westerns and stuff so i'd say i think okay if i if i if i gun to the head i would say probably film reigns supreme just because it stands alone as in I can take the film off the shelf and watch it, and if I just took the book off the shelf and I have not seen the film, I'll be like, I have no idea what this is all about. This is weird, and then there's this Tate, something happens, nothing happens to her, I don't I don't get it, but then when you watch the film, you're like, oh, I get it, why? why? I get why he's making the choices in the book that he makes, but then you can't have this, you need the context of the film to do it, which means the film is kind of superior.
0: Yeah, and, and weirdly enough, I just had, it's I think the benefit of the book is that at least it goes more in depth on Charles Manson and you have more context, which is something that a lot of people didn't have going into the film. I remember I watched it with some, uh, my, my it was actually the first night in uni in the UK and I went out with my flatmates to kind of socialize and watched the movie and none of them knew about Charles Manson and Sharon Tate. So they took it all as fiction. So I think that's probably the biggest strength of the book is that so, at least it gives more context.
2: So they did, did they think that, oh, this Marilyn Manson guy, what what a strange name he has. They
0: didn't, no, they did, literally didn't get it. They were like, yeah, but what was all that about? Why do we care about this woman? I was like, oh hmm. no, I'm I'm crying. But just, yeah. Yuan why don't you tell me, tell us.
1: I think... I, I do prefer the film to the book, and I, I think that's for a couple of reasons. I think one, it's because it's it's the first Tarantino film I saw in the cinema, and that's just going always going to have a soft spot for me. I can see Jacob's eyes there. He he forgets how young I am. I'm I'm a little cherub. I was 19 when Once Upon a Time in Hollywood oh, came out. So it
2: was the first movie we were allowed to see in <laughs> the cinema.
1: First movie I was allowed to see.
2: Because there are um, all hard 18s in here.
1: Yeah, yeah, they they really don't let up on it. Is 18? There's a lot of blood. That's it. But uh, beyond it being my first experience, it was a very good experience. Took my dad to see it and he fell asleep halfway through. And then when I asked him what he thought, he said, it was very good, son, very good. So, um, yeah, it's, I think, uh, because I'm so used to having Tarantino work as a visual creator, I think it's not just easier for me, but it's better for me to see what he wishes to say, to see the the narrator, bring those characters to life to hear the soundtrack the the record scratch moments where mrs robinson plays as the characters start to interject and i think what really serves well with once upon a time in hollywood in both instances is that tarantino makes happenstance work rick dalton just happens to live next to one of the big flames of the 1960s and its turn into the 1970s he just happens to live next to ron Plansky and sharon tate it's not a it's not something he he just depend on it but it's not something that needs to feel drawn out or elongated it's just a very matter of fact these are just neighbors they that, that was regular in hollywood at the time people live next to famous people and he doesn't make a big deal of it it just happens to be such a core mechanic of his story in both instances where i think the film does better than the book though is that it has that edge into it where it's it doesn't have the self-indulgence the, the the book has now while the film does have a bit of self-indulgence it is capped off with phenomenal performances and iconography of the 1960s that projects itself well everything that tarantino writes about in the book is more or less captured in the film he just feels he's left a few details out and has written a book and the book is fine i enjoyed the book um but like Jakob said i couldn't just jump into the book because you need the the history of the film you need to do your research and watch the film before you read the book and it, it i think it, in, in in rare exceptions you could say okay well the book might have its own merits but the book is very much connected and dependent on the film nothing wrong with that it's just you can't have you can have the film without the book you can't have the book without the film
0: yeah i i share all of your sentiments i i I, I do think they complement each other in interesting ways, which which makes me curious to see if we'll ever get that famous extended four-hour cut. That's of... coming
1: out in a couple of years, apparently, along with a Bounty Law TV show and a follow-up book to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood.
0: Ooh, interesting! Well, oh, great. have I
2: heard that before? The Star Trek in this film is also in the works, right?
0: It is. It'll happen. He's hey, going to do it. He promised a TV version of Django back in 2013. Oh, <laughs> That's it's... never come out as well.
2: I'm telling you, do you know what he's going to do? A remake of The Lady in Red. <laughs>
0: <Jeez>. <laughs> With Michael hinted, Madsen.
2: Hinted at in the book.
1: Single handedly revive Michael Madsen's career. <laughs> like oh,
2: twice, Digitally de yes.
1: aging. <laughs> he might do a Vega Brothers movie after all.
2: No, he's not gonna do it. No,
1: he's gonna do it. They're he's gonna going to both be this. geriatric. He's gonna do a patients. Vega
2: Brothers or uh, uh, he's probably gonna do a play with these things. He's gonna. Re- ah. I think he's gonna revisit his stuff in theater. He mentioned this.
1: He wanted. Yeah, he said he wanted to do that.
2: I'm just. I
1: think out of all of them, Reservoir Dogs is the clear cut because it's more or less one room straight away. Head for Head imagine being just...
0: in the Imagine being in the room when they actually made the theater play of Eightfold Eight. Well, not the theater play, but just like the reading the of the read. original script, the table read, yeah. Yeah. When they made it in the in a theater, just whoa. Oh, I wish they recorded that. But it makes it more special that it's impossible to get it. But yeah, I, I, I do believe the film version of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is superior. Because of everything you, you guys said as well. It's just it's just a film, It's just as the like you you're not reading in the music, you're actually listening to it you're seeing the editing, the everything. And even the ending, it's, one is more, well, honestly, like I, I want to say the book ending is more poignant than the one in the film, but I'm I'm lying on that point. Like every time, I've also seen like five times, twice in the theater mm-hmm. and every single times it makes me emotional at the end. It's kind of like seeing Sharon Tate come out mm-hmm. of the shadows with like this big belly and she's alive and everything's going, nice and happy and they're going to live happily ever after in this fictional fantasy of hollywood and just the title comes up that, that i remember that's when it hit me it was like did once upon a time in hollywood it's not looking back at the past this is the fairy tale do you mentioned it as well yeah just this is the fairy tale
2: well it has a hollywood ending like it the camera goes yeah. on the crane upwards. All you need is basically just a nice sort of string music, and it's like the fifties sort of film.
0: And I don't remember the name of the track that plays at the end, but that's from again from a, from a movie It wasn't originally scored for this one. But it's I think that's a definition of like a melancholic song. It just fills you with this warm sadness, which is like gives me chills literally every time. And there actually yes, I do. Like I went on a long rant with my college. Flatmates, because I had to explain them everything and why I was crying in the cinema after this, because it just it just gets to me. Um, and this was my actually like speaking of Tarantino films, this was my third one in the cinema. First one was Django, but that's because they're way more lenient here in Italy with ratings. So, yeah.
2: <coughs> Kill Bill represent.
0: Sorry. <laughs> I I used to go to the cinema
1: every week. I got ID'd for the Will Ferrell comedy Downhill. I was. 20. Jesus. And that film was a 12. So either I look incredibly young or it's mandatory that they check every ID for everyone wanting to see that nonsense remake of Force Majeure.
2: (laughs) I got got carded for um, (laughs) buying wine when I was 33.
0: (laughs) I don't get carded for alcohol. Apparently I look 26. Now I've always been carded in the UK. Never here in Italy. They don't care. Does
2: in the UK constantly? By, by the way, Nick, when you had to explain, it's like, oh, because I cried and I had to explain. Did the um, did one of your friends behave like um, like Arnold Schwarzenegger in Terminator too? Why do you cry? Is there something yeah. wrong with your eyes? <laughs> they didn't get it.
0: They're like, yeah, it's, a, it's an ending, you
2: know. It's What why, why do you cry? The woman's dead, <laughs> and she isn't. You don't get it.
0: Yeah, that's oof some people can see it as a negative of the movie, honestly, but personally, I think it's fine. It's interesting that for people who don't know, even if they're bored throughout most of the movie, because I could tell, I've, I've, there was like four of us, I can tell that at least half of them were bored. The ending gave them that adrenaline rush that made everything make sense. It's just kind of like a sad state of affairs, like you need the blood to make a movie good. And if you put it at the end, they're going to think it was great even though they were yawning throughout the majority of like Spawn Ranch and the Rick Dalton acting. So that's a shame. But, but I'm, I'm thankful that we have, honestly, this movie. I'm thankful that we have the novel. I wish Tarantino keeps on, keeps on writing, keeps on making more stuff. And they kind of hope he strays away from the beaten path. Just do something you haven't done before. He wants to do horror, either do horror as your final movie, Or do novels, do horror books. I would love to read that shit. Make me an exorcist haunted house gothic horror filled with swear words. I don't know. Do something, Quentin. He should remake
1: The Haunted Mansion with Eddie
0: Murphy. I'll be honest with you.
2: With Eddie Murphy. With Eddie
0: Murphy.
2: (laughs) If he ever ever made a horror as a film or as a book, I see it more closely as like a giallo.
0: Yeah, that's fair. But that guy right, he's already doing that. You'll be like coffee after, right? And What's by the way,
2: thing? I just when I rewatched this yesterday, I, I tweeted. No one, no one gave a shit, about hey, I tweeted. This movie is so this... damn perfect, and anyone who disagrees is a hippie snowflake who wouldn't recognize greatness, even if it tossed a can of dog food in their face. So that's my final statement. <laughs>
0: uh, bless this movie and bless Tarantino, honestly. So... Yeah,
1: it's it's all right. Like, yeah, it's all right. <laughs> Just the <laughs> like see,
0: Hater's
2: going to hate and you see you not know, going like this.
0: He's going to like, I don't care. It makes I make millions care. of dollars. Um, so this brings us to a close with the first episode of Death by Adaptation. And let's give a round of conclusion okay. to everyone. <laughs> Just, <laughs> a round of applause, people. <laughs> we did it. We survived. And you survived as well, listening. But let's close things off. Uh tell us where we can find you. Yuan, go first.
1: I was about to say England there. <laughs> you
2: can Wouldn't find be entirely me <laughs>
1: incorrect. <laughs> you can <laughs> You can Oh on. You can find you can find me on Twitter and letterbox at Yuan Gleto. You can also find my writing on Clappercult following Northern Lights and the Geek Show.
0: Jakub?
2: What? <laughs> You can find me on, on Twitter at Talk About Film. You can find me also on Letterboxd as I You can find my stuff on clapper at www.clapperltd.co.uk And you can find my stuff also on flashonfilm.com. And you can also find me in England.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can you can you can follow me on Twitter at Nikki 97 you can watch my short films, my videos on YouTube and Vimeo at EnjoyTheMovies. And of course, you can read all of our stuff on clapperltd.co.uk, features, reviews of books as well. We're starting now. The good old Yuan has already put up the review for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And there's going to be two book reviews a month starting August, so very, very soon. And yes, stay tuned for more episodes of That's by Adaptation once every month at the end of the month. And also be sure to check out The other two Clapper podcasts, you have Clappercast, where we discuss the latest movie releases coming out in theaters and on VOD and streaming. And then Uncut Gems, where we're talking about movies that no one wants to talk about, but we sure enjoy talking about them. Everything from The Village to Death Proof. If you want another Tarantino dose, just go into that one. It was a blast to record and that's it so thank you very much for listening and we hope to hear from you soon bye-bye